Welcome to Outdoor by 4 Magazine's audio edition of issue 43. For those unfamiliar with Outdoor by 4, the magazine began its journey as a fully independent, vehicle-based adventure and outdoors lifestyle publication in 2013. Since that time, Outdoor by 4 has been the catalyst for expanding the reach of overland and vehicle-based adventure travel into the outdoors market, with a focus not only on the mode of travel, whether a 4x4, motorcycle, bicycle, or by foot, but also on the adventures themselves and the people who live them. In this issue, you'll hear a sampling of stories from the print edition, including The Dispatch, by Outdoor by Four's editor-in-chief. Wandering Among Ghosts, Exploring Colorado Ghost Towns with Titus Adventure Company. Copper Canyon, Adventures in Failure While Adventure Motorcycling in Northern Mexico. Adventurous Spirit, An Adventure Through Mirrors Adventure Park in West Texas, 250 million years in the making. And Deborah and Beyond, a hiking adventure along Idaho's highest point. There are also a variety of additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy anywhere books are sold, or by subscribing and receiving a copy as part of your subscription order by visiting www.outdoorx4.com. We hope you enjoy this issue of Outdoor by 4 magazine. The Dispatch by Frank Ludwell, Editor-in-Chief When I first met Val and Katarina at Overland Expo in 2019, their commitment to a life of travel and experiencing the world around them left me with a strong sense of admiration. Here was this young couple, about five years my junior, who had opted to embark along the road less traveled and leave their native Ukraine on a journey that, at the time, seemed innocuous and ambitious. It wasn't until several years later their global jaunt would be shrouded in a cloud of uncertainty and whether they would ever be able to return to their homeland and the family they had originally left with excitement but now would yearn for. Our chance encounter happened during one of the few breaks I typically get while attending the annual Overland Expo event in Flagstaff, Arizona. For those of you unfamiliar with Overland Expo, the event is hosted annually in select locations throughout the U.S. and has become the largest consortium of vehicle-based adventurists young and old, as well as new and experienced, to learn about overland travel, participate in roundtable discussions, meet with vendors across the overland space, and enjoy camaraderie with an expansive community. Outdoor by Four Magazine has been a title media sponsor of each of these events for years, and each year we host a booth during the three-day weekend where we give away copies of the magazine, sell discounted subscriptions, and enjoy visiting with attendees. As luck would have it, I was returning to our booth from a brief lunch break when Val and Katarina saw me and asked if I knew where a specific vendor was located. I guided them to their destination, and while walking, they told me of their decision to leave Ukraine in an old land cruiser with plans to tour the world. They told me of their journey through Belarus, then west to Poland and south into the heart of Western Europe before embarking for Africa, then traveling to Namibia and Cape Town all before arranging to head to South America and up through Central America into the U.S., where they had met me. Val and Katarina shared stories of chance experiences into the unknown, encounters with border crossing that seemed almost too outrageous to be true, and meeting people cross-culturally whose curiosity and open hearts greeted them wherever they were. Their journey had been a story of adventure. Their journey had been a story of humanity. 
We said our goodbyes, and I asked them to please stop by our booth to say hello, and I would have a copy of the magazine waiting for them. I figured a copy of the magazine would provide a reprieve for them, and maybe even inspire them to visit a stateside locale not previously on their radar. Later that day, they did indeed stop by, and we visited for 15 or 20 minutes before they left, onward to continue their journey across the U.S. into Canada. I smiled, knowing this young couple was having the experience of a lifetime, and prayed they would enjoy safe travels before eventually returning home. Now, as I look back on that chance encounter, I wonder where Val and Katerina are. Did they finish their journey? Did they return to their home, only to flee as their homeland is under attack? How are their friends and family? Are they safe? Val and Katerina's desire to expand their cultural horizon is in us all. Their experiences reflect an innate need we, as adventure seekers, all have to know the world around us. Their experiences are part of the human fabric that binds us all. And for this, we should all be grateful. Are you looking for the perfect fitting, fully customizable pop-up truck camper for your next adventure? Then look no further than the selection from four-wheel campers. From classic slide-in, bed top, and flatbed configuration designs, Four-Wheel Campers has the setup you need. With extensive available custom options and precision built in Woodland, California, Four-Wheel Campers has been providing quality equipment for the outdoor community since 1972. For more information on the pop-up camper you've been looking for, then pop on over to fourwheelcampers.com. That's F-O-U-R, wheelcampers.com. Wandering Among Ghosts, Exploring Colorado Ghost Towns with Titus Adventure Company, by Michael Holland. I shifted the transfer case into four low and paused to think for a second. Is this trail too much? The boulders seem big. Do I have enough clearance? What if I damage the vehicle? After a few seconds, I eased my left foot off the brake pedal and gently pushed on the gas pedal with my right. Forward. Oh, and by the way, it was sunset, and I was at an elevation approaching 11,000 feet deep in the Colorado high country. Yeah, adventure was afoot. Days earlier, I picked up a Lexus GX460 from Titus Adventure Company, TAC, in Denver, Colorado. No, it wasn't a mall cruiser. This Lexus was built for off-road adventure travel. It came with a suspension lift, larger all-terrain tires, rock sliders, a rooftop tent, an awning, and a kitted-out kitchen. Forget malls indeed. This vehicle was begging to be used as a tool to explore the Colorado high country and to wander through the ghost towns of the past. Travis Titus, TAC owner, gave me a complete tour of Dolly, the Lexus, and the equipment on and in it. TAC offers 10 vehicles to meet any adventurer's needs. Whether an off-road vehicle or a two-wheel drive camper van, TAC has you covered. Travis handed me the keys, really a key fob, and within minutes, I steered westward to hike and explore the ghost towns hidden in the high alpine of the Colorado Rockies. I motored up the mountains on Highway 285. I, along with thousands of other people, sought to escape Urbanville, aka Denver, for some peace and quiet in the mountains of Colorado. I followed my brother Rob, who lives in Golden, through the twists and curves of the highway. 
We descended a few hours later into the town of Buena Vista. We fueled and then found a picturesque campsite on the outskirts of town. The sunset over the collegiate peaks was mesmerizing. We relaxed around the propane fire pit, part of the camping package from TAC, and marveled at the western light glistening over the Arkansas River Valley. The following morning, I awoke from a wonderful night's rest. Dolly features an Alacab rooftop tent. After just one night, I was impressed with its comfort. We made breakfast and with the complete kitchen kit in the vehicle enjoyed our meal, packed up and headed for the high country. Our first stop, the ghost town of St. Elmo, Colorado. Founded in 1880, St. Elmo is the classic boom and bust mining town. Gold and silver mines resulted in roughly 2,000 miners living in the town through their heyday. By the late 1920s, the rush faded and the population dwindled. Today, numerous buildings give the visitor a glimpse of life in yesteryear. I walked the dirt road and peeked into a few windows. A very nice lady approached and asked a few questions of me and Rob. We discovered that she was a member of the St. Elmo Historical Society. The Society's job is to take care of and preserve this historical town. They've done a marvelous job. My brother and I continued our stroll down Main Street before visiting the general store, which is truly the only place open in town. We browsed the store and then returned to our vehicles. We continued up into the mountains. Our goal was to find an old railway to hike. Leaving St. Elmo, we traveled higher into the Rockies and passed numerous old mine sites. Roughly five miles later, we stopped at the trailhead to the Alpine Tunnel Trail. This trail follows an old railroad bed as it traverses the mountain to a now closed tunnel. The tunnel provided passage through the mountain and continued on the other side. This railroad was a gateway to travel east and west through the collegiate peaks. On this day, my brother and I hiked at a good pace and passed a few Continental Divide through hikers along the way. We had a clear, sunny day with calm winds. It was simply delightful. Seven or so miles later, we returned to our vehicles and motored toward St. Elmo. After our vehicles hit pavement, Rob headed to Golden and waved goodbye. I, on the other hand, continued south toward Lake City, Colorado. Dolly handled smoothly along Highway 149, and I reached the outskirts of Lake City. The town was quiet as the sun had already set and daylight was fading. I discovered a decent campsite just outside of town and popped the tent in a matter of minutes. TAC takes pride in making sure the client has everything he or she needs to adventure. I needed a light. Sure enough, I found a solar light inside one of the drawers, clicked it on, and continued preparing dinner. Later, the cascading water of Nellie Creek lulled me to sleep. The following morning, I packed up and backtracked a few miles to the town of Henson, Colorado. The town became populated in about 1878, when miners settled there while working the Ute and Hidden Treasure Mines. A post office, school, mine buildings, and residences covered the area. A large dam was built on Henson Creek in the early 1880s to meet the town's energy demands. But, when transportation costs rose and silver prices plummeted, the mines closed. I walked Henson, following a nice brochure that I found at a kiosk just off the road to Engineer Pass. Many of the buildings retain their historic nature and appearance as the county has seen the economic benefit. I walked and photographed this ghost town all by myself, thinking of the men and women who tried to strike it rich. With a quick fuel stop in Lake City, 
I headed towards Cinnamon Pass and American Basin. The dirt road gave way to broken rock, gravel, and ruts. Dolly ate up the terrain as I gained altitude. Along the way, I passed a few cabins of yesteryear, each with a story to be discovered. Unfortunately, time wasn't on my side. I was hoping to get to American Basin to photograph the wildflowers and hike to a peak. I made it to the basin around 1 o'clock and quickly assembled my photographic and hiking gear. By 1.30, I was hiking and sucking air. The trailhead was over 12,000 feet, so the air was thin, but it felt fantastic to be hiking in the high alpine basin. Colorado Blue Columbine, Marsh Marigold, and Perry's Primrose were among the flowers that showed their beauty as I hiked. I passed numerous waterfalls that enhanced the adventure. I eventually made it to the Alpine Cirque and Sloan Lake. The water was a magnificent blue. Clouds over the San Juan Mountains formed, and within minutes, I heard the roar of thunder. I focused to see if there was any lightning. I didn't want to press my luck, so I scarfed a snack and began my retreat. Large drops of rain immediately fell from the heavens, and I quickly put on my rain gear. The hike down was uneventful as the rain stopped. The glory of the San Juan Mountains surrounded me. After returning to Dolly, I descended the Alpine Loop Road. I made a few stops to witness the sun dance over the peaks of Colorado. The mineral-rich mountainsides of iron, with vibrant orange and red colors, popped in a backdrop of cobalt blue skies. With careful eyes, I spotted the right-hand turn that would lead me to the Colorado High Country ghost town of Carson. After just a mile or so, I realized the road was in pretty rough shape. Large boulders and loose gravel made traction difficult. I wondered aloud if I were making the right decision to continue. I decided to shift Dolly into four low, drive for another 15 minutes or so, then make a final decision. Dolly was ready for the adventure. She crawled and made her way up the boulder-strewn field without an issue. The truck proved tight and solid. It was a joy to drive. As I crested the roughest part about 20 minutes later, I was thoroughly impressed by the form and function of the Lexus GX460. And I was lucky to find a campsite on the outskirts of Carson. I popped the tent, lit the propane fireplace, and prepared a late evening dinner. Wait, did I hear something? No. It was just my mind wondering what it must have been like to be a miner, living at 11,000 feet and trying to make a living wage. Carson, Colorado was founded in 1889. At one time, more than 500 miners lived here and searched for gold and silver close to 12,000 feet. As a result of its altitude, it was one of the most isolated and difficult mining towns to reach. And, you guessed it, harsh winters took their toll. Eventually, the miners moved to a warmer location. Can't blame them. With the night sky filled with stars, I was a little chilled camping at high altitude. I climbed the ladder, crawled into the tent, and drifted to sleep. Colorado was full of history lessons. I was glad that I got to see some of its mining heritage up close and personal. Yes, it can be tough to get away from the summer crowds in colorful Colorado, but there's a trick. Call Travis at TAC. He will point you in the right direction and rent you the right vehicle. Enjoy.
Copper Canyon, Adventures in Failure, by Scott Brown. The worst part about traveling overland to Mexico is crossing a vast void which is the state of Texas. Not that I don't love my state, but from my home in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, I'm at least nine hours to the border, one way, via boring interstates and highways. However, for what lies on the other side of the border, I've never complained about the trip south. It was Saturday evening, and ferocious southerly winds created an ominous dust storm, blotting out the sun. Our traveling crew, who were just arriving at our comfortable but unsophisticated motel on the Texas side of the border, expressed concern that our trip into Mexico would encounter similar conditions the next day. But as the evening progressed, the wind subsided, and we crossed into Ojinaga for dinner at a terraced restaurant overlooking the small border town. We toasted with beer and mezcal, telling lies of past adventures, and bragging about our riding skills for the trip to come. All of my trips to Mexico seem to start the same way. I wake up an hour earlier than I want, excited about the upcoming adventure, so I go out to the parking lot in the dark to finish packing my bike, while looking over everyone else's. It is crazy how often even the best of riders have a loose nut or two on the bike. Still, a couple of hours before our crew agreed to depart, I'm already getting breakfast and topping off the bike. Then I wait, impatiently, for everyone else to make their final preparations. Finally, we convoy to the border and get our temporary vehicle importation permits and tourist visas. Even during COVID lockdowns, we were still allowed to cross the border. We all respected the mask requirements and had no issues entering Mexico. Our route would take us from Ojinaga along the highway to Camargo where we tested the range of our motorcycles. Some 170 miles from the border, my little Honda 250 pegged wide open and the fuel light came on just as I was pulling into the gas station. My larger saddlebags caused a lot of drag at highway speeds, causing my normal 80 miles per gallon to drop to an alarming 50 miles per gallon. It didn't help that my riding companions were all on 700cc bikes or larger, and keeping up with them at speeds above the posted limit was a challenge. From the dusty rolling hills near Camargo, we descended into the Paral River Valley, where empty grasslands made way to lush green oases of pecan orchards, irrigated by a ditch running alongside the valley. No oasis comes without risk, and it was here that one member of our team, whom we called the Dude, crashed his Yamaha Supertenary in a deep pit of sand. Like any good photographer, I made sure to snap a photo before offering assistance. With minimal damage to his pride and body, we only needed to straighten out his metal panniers. The deep sand continued for many more miles, and we often stopped for breaks in the few small farming villages before finally popping out onto the highway to Peral. Peral is a beautiful colonial town, one that I had never heard about, and possesses an interesting history. Founded as a mining town on the banks of the Peral River, the La Prieta mine was noted to be one of the richest in the world. King Philip IV of Spain claimed it was the capital of the world. The mine boomed for 345 years, supplying great wealth to Spain and later to Mexico. Peral was also a passing home for Francisco Pancho Villa, the infamous Mexican revolutionary who was eventually gunned down near his hacienda outside of Peral. From Peral, we continued southwest into the mountains. Being comfortable on my own in Mexico, and an early riser, 
I got a head start on our crew and began the ride to Guadalupe y Calvo, a road well known for being one of the most dangerous in Mexico, with frequent gun battles between the Mexican army and cartels. Even with a two-hour head start and no lunch break, I made the five-hour ride predictably unscathed, arriving only 30 minutes before the fast movers in our group. Guadalupe y Calvo is the end of the pavement and the start of the real adventure. But first, street tacos. My friend Ilias and I made another early start and had the lunch destination of Baboragam, 43 miles away. It was on this sand-covered, pothole-ridden road that the adventure began. Hidden in the talcum powder-like road base were plenty of rocks that ultimately wreaked havoc on my suspension. I first noticed my fork bottoming out on the simplest holes, and before I could stop, all of the fluid had escaped the drain plug of the damping side of the fork. Being approximately three-quarters of the way to Baboragam meant a long, slow ride into town. I parked the bike on the town's small plaza and began working on my predicament. The town was abuzz with its Saturday morning market, and before long, I had a large crowd of colorfully clad spectators. Since the bolt was completely lost, I needed to find a replacement. Not knowing the thread size, pitch, or length, I called in a favor with a friend at home who was able to find a similar bolt to safely scavenge elsewhere from the bike. There was one motor parts store in Baboragam, and the only option to replace my fork oil was tin weight motor oil. It worked just fine. With the bike sorted, I happily ate lunch with a beer. Unfortunately, my celebration was short-lived. Just a few miles out of Baboragam, I felt as if the rear tire was hopping especially on looser climbs. Soon after, the rear shock faded until it was simply a high-priced pogo stick without the fun. It was still another 40 miles of rocky dirt trail before we would reach our destination for the night and without a rear shock. Now, let me interject a little here. Because of the day's bad luck, I needed to play a little game to lift my spirits. The names of the towns were primarily of indigenous origin and my memory at that moment wasn't cooperating. The town Baboragam became affectionately known as Bubblegum. Our destination for the day, Kokoyome, became Coco Puff, and Guachochi, the town the following day, became Nochi. These little word association games allowed me to remember even the most difficult to pronounce names. The day was tough, but we began enjoying the views of Copper Canyon and all its beauty. Having followed a ridge for some miles, we could now see, on the opposite precipice, the switchbacks to Kokiyome. The road to the bottom of the canyon was badly eroded with even more rocks and washouts. We crossed the one-lane steel bridge over the Rio Guarachi and began our climb, and were relieved that the road conditions had improved. The children of the only small village along the route were out replacing stones in the washouts in the road. I stopped and gave them a few pesos for their efforts and promptly dropped the bike on the steep switchback. I made up for that embarrassment with an unspectacular wheelie as I continued my race up the canyon road. Built on the steep northern incline of the Sinforosa Canyon, Kokoyome Echo Park, where we stayed, served as a great point of rejuvenation. Kokoyome has several rugged stone villas carved into the hillside, a treehouse with its own drawbridge, and a large waterfall that shapes the rugged beauty of the canyon around it. For those staying longer, a multitude of trails abound, and there are a number of other activities to partake in. 
As the sun sank into the canyon, the crew and I cracked open warm cans of well-shaken cerveza, celebrating the day's adventure and difficult riding. The on-site restaurant prepared our group a sampling of local fare. We received thick tortilla-like patties made from various local grains and nuts, as well as locally caught trout. It was frosty the following morning, and my mood was just as cold. During the night, I had decided that my trip would be cut short, and I would break from the group to take an alternate route due to the lack of a rear shock. I announced this to my ride mates, and while disappointed, they agreed this would be the best option. The group would continue through the canyon, on more difficult roads, to Batopila, while Warren and Peter would join me on the smooth, twisty pavement route to Guachochi and the infamous paved switchbacks into Batopila. The road was not busy with vehicular traffic, but brightly dressed pedestrians lined the roadways of every village. It was Sunday, and most villages were having gatherings and markets. One of my life's regrets was not stopping more often on that day, for I am just as interested in this Earth's many cultures as I am with its geological beauty. Warren, Peter, and I arrived at Batapila in time for a late lunch, well before the rest of the dirty crew. The tiny town was bustling, with Raramuri women in colorful frocks and men wrapped in white cotton. We were informed by the locals that this day was when people would receive their welfare checks from the government. It would also mean that most shops would have a queue of those wanting to buy their monthly supplies. We walked around town, enjoying the sights and some ice cream, until the rest of the group arrived. Before sunset, we rode just outside of Batapila to the Sativo Mission, originally founded in 1640. For a small donation to the church, you're allowed to climb the shaky wooden ladders to the roof, a real feat in heavy motorcycling boots. We later enjoyed dinner in the quaint town of Batopila. From Batopila, I made the 12-hour trek to the border, leaving the full group behind who still had two more days of riding dirt in the canyons. My pogo stick and I broke all the rules for riding in Mexico that day, passing on semi-blind corners, riding in the border region alone, and at night no less. However, sometimes rules should be thrown out the window and life lived on the edge. This trip offered countless more positive memories of Mexico, a land that has proven to be mysterious, colorful, and safe, and a place I will always be drawn to and encourage others to visit. Adventurous Spirit Miris Adventure Park is host to adventures 250 million years in the making. Words by Frank Ludwell, photos by Frank and Andrea Ludwell. Close your eyes and imagine a place where indigenous peoples battle each other while thriving off the land for nearly 12,000 years. A place carved from the basement of time. A place so unique to its surroundings that it's almost surreal. Now, open your eyes and look around you. Walls as deep as an 80-story building with layers of jagged white gypsum and soft red sandstone surround you. You're in the middle of a geological time capsule. You're in Paladoro Canyon. Paladoro Canyon resides in the Panhandle of West Texas and stretches along the Llano Estacado, an area encompassing nearly 38,000 square miles of the South Plains. At 126 miles in length, the canyon is the second largest in North America. Much of the canyon is privately owned with three large portions of the land's ownership dating back to the period shortly after Texas's independence from Mexico, at a time when land grants were offered to entice new settlers to the newly formed republic. Over the years, ownership has changed hands, though much of the canyon continues to be privately owned. 
save for Paladero Canyon State Park, which is one of the finest state parks in all of Texas. Of the privately owned ranches within the walls of the canyon is a newly formed adventure destination, Miris Adventure Park. Miris is comprised of 5,500 acres, nearly 6,500 acres when taking into account the elevation gains from canyon floor to its roof, and opened to the public in late spring 2021. In that time, I visited the property on two occasions, relishing it as a true gem for adventurous spirits with a variety of recreational opportunities including four-wheel exploration, camping, hiking, mountain biking, and wildlife viewing. My recent jaunts to Paladero Canyon weren't my first. 25 years earlier, I was introduced to the canyon as a college student attending school in nearby Lubbock, traveling to Paladero Canyon State Park with friends for a weekend of primitive camping and hiking. Over the following years, until my graduation from college, I would make numerous trips to PD, as it was affectionately called, to explore the canyon's immense history and enjoy its natural beauty on foot and by mountain bike. I developed a fondness for the canyon, a sort of friendship I carried with me, eventually guiding me along the path less traveled and into my career as a publisher. Once I graduated from school and left West Texas, I rarely went back, as if I had closed that chapter in my life. I didn't return to PD until 2009, this time with my future wife, Andrea, to attend a Jeep Jamboree within a privately owned section within the canyon. My reunion with this region was much like seeing a dear friend with whom I'd lost contact. It was as if the land and I picked up where we had left off, sharing the stories we had accumulated while we had been apart. It was good to be back, and, in some way, I felt like the canyon was happy I was there. PD had left a lasting impression. On this particular journey to the Texas Panhandle, my travels would have me exploring Miris Adventure Park from the driver's seat of an American Safari JXL, built by Red River Rigs in nearby Amarillo, highlighted by its additional 50% of cargo space by virtue of its 15 inches of extended length. The JXL would be my steed of choice to explore and tackle Miris Adventure Park's varied layers of red sandstone and gypsum over a two-day period. Upon my arrival, I checked in and was given a map of the park's layout, with 25 primitive campsites available and located in strategic positions to maximize the canyon experience. I selected an area for base camp along Camp Point, located southeast of the entrance, and ventured that direction. Upon arrival, I had about an hour to deploy the JXL's pop-up tent before fixing dinner to relax as the setting sun slowly faded from the horizon. The exposed, multicolored layers of sandstone sandwiched amongst the canyon walls provided a backdrop for waxing philosophy as my family and I saddled on the canyon's edge, taking in our surroundings while eating from the mountain house dehydrated meal pouches. The following morning, we arose early and loaded up the JXL to explore the park on two wheels before dropping into the canyon to explore it on four wheels. Near the park's main entrance is a trailhead dubbed the Rec Center. Dirk Van Reenen, the park's proprietor and native of West Texas, has been very strategic in the creation of the park's trail system. Whether it's a bike trail, hike trail, or four-wheel trail, the attention to detail and trailblazing and maximizing the experience for visitors is unparalleled. From the Rec Center trailhead, a series of multi-use single-track mountain bike hiking trails are interconnected as part of a zigzagging loop three and a half miles in length and varied in technicality. During the previous night, a thunderous rainstorm had drenched the park and our single-track jaunt was cut short as significant sections of our ride had been turned from packed red sandstone into a slippery mixture of clay and mud. 
Despite this, our two-wheeled adventure culminated with stunning views as Hertz's bluff loomed in the distance. Complementing the trails extending out from the Rex Center trailhead, there's also the North Rim mountain bike loop with five and a half miles of incredible single track and stunning views of the canyon's basement. Additional mountain biking trails are currently in queue throughout the park, expanding the exceptional opportunities to explore Maris Adventure Park on two wheels. Additionally, the park is home to three hiking-only trails, and plans are in place to expand this to allow for exploratory options by foot. Once we were back at the trailhead, we loaded our bikes, dropped them off at Camp Point, and began our four-wheeled adventure through the park. Our descent into the canyon along the western boundary of Park Road West brought us to our first off-road challenge, the Sidewinder Trail. The Sidewinder Trail is a medium-rated four-wheeled track and one of 20 off-road trails totaling 35 and a half miles within the park. As its name suggests, the Sidewinder Trail slithers its way across technical terrain our American Safari JXL's Jeep traversed with relative ease. Our disconnected sway bars provided a cloud-like experience despite a variety of obstacles formed through 250 million years of evolution eventually navigating our way to the drop zone of the Miris 101 loop trail. What the Miris 101 lacks in overall technical challenge, it unquestionably provides as the most enjoyable driving experience anywhere in the park. At four and a half miles in length, it's not particularly long. However, the trail provides an exceptional opportunity to experience how dynamic the terrain of Halidoro Canyon is, with red sandstone and exposed gypsum often leaving one to think they're on another planet rather than the Texas Panhandle. It's a testament to how truly remarkable the region's geological history is, creating a most aesthetically riveting experience for the senses. A variety of more technical trails are accessible from the Miris 101 and spread throughout the basement of the park's boundaries, allowing for an experience that can be customized based on the vehicle and how it's been modified for additional wheel travel, body protection, tire size, etc. In short, Miris Adventure Park is an impressive adventure destination. Whether you're looking to explore on four wheels, two wheels, or by foot, Miris Adventure Park is a true gem within one of the most dynamic natural settings anywhere in the lower 48. And despite 25 years having passed since my introduction to PV, it's as if our journey had taken us back to the future. Back to a place slowly evolving. Back to a long lost friend, 250 million years in the making. Planning your Miris Adventure Park adventure. Miris Adventure Park is set within the 126 miles of North America's second largest canyon, Paladero Canyon. The park is privately owned and features nearly 6,500 plus acres of usable land, highlighted by the canyon's sedimentary layers of sandstone and gypsum that provides an incredible ambiance with a region highlighted by rapidly shifting environments. The park currently features 25 primitive campsites, 20 boondocking RV sites, and 35 and a half miles of off-road trails with plans to expand to over 100 miles, continually evolving and growing, each of which varies in technical prowess and easily accessible within the park's boundaries. Additionally, a myriad of hiking and mountain biking trails enhances the opportunity to explore, creating an environment as a true adventure destination. Accessing Miris Adventure Park from anywhere in the U.S. is easy. Located just 35 minutes from downtown Amarillo in the Texas Panhandle, Adventurists from the East Coast or West Coast can travel Interstate 40 to Amarillo or fly into Amarillo International Airport. Because Miris Adventure Park is privately owned, you'll need to book your trip in advance. Group outings are available, and pre-selected dates for public day passes are also available.
Visit the Amiris Adventure Park website at www.mirisadventure.com to learn more. About the American Safari JXL Originally based on the Jeep JKU platform, and now also available for the JLU model Wrangler and JT Gladiator, the American Safari JXL is a conversion created by Red River Rigs, a Texas-based company specializing in maximizing the usable space of modern Jeep vehicles. The conversion is highlighted by an extension of the rear of the vehicle, adding 15 inches to the rear of the vehicle and resulting in an additional 50% of cargo capacity for vehicle-based adventure. Each conversion incorporates a pop-up roof tent with select conversions including a toilet, sink, and shower system, an optional cooking surface and seating area, and interior cabinetry to provide additional storage. There are two camper configurations to choose from, and all conversions are done in-house at the Red River Rigs facility in Amarillo. Additionally, Red River Rigs can modify and maximize your vehicle's capabilities by installing upgraded suspension componentry, lighting, and other accessories for your Jeep vehicle. To learn more, contact Red River Rigs by visiting their website at www.americansafarijxl.com or by phone at 833-810-1043. During the Age of Discovery, navigators would guide their wooden ships by the stars. The Age of Discovery continues today, with explorers guiding their vessels by the satellite. Garmin has been the leader in GPS navigation since 1989, and the tradition of excellence continues with the new Tread XL, a GPS navigation unit built specifically for the Overland Explorer. Featuring a rugged IP67 weather resistance rating and a 10-inch ultra-bright touchscreen display, the Tread XL provides turn-by-turn -turn navigation of unpaved roads using OSM and U.S. Forest Service mapping. Get custom routing based on your vehicle specifications, detailed aerial views with downloadable bird's-eye imagery technology, and sync data across devices and routes with the Tread app for your compatible smartphone. With an active subscription, the Tread XL also links with in-reach technology for reliable global satellite communications. The Garmin Tread XL is built for the journey ahead. Roam the unknown with the leader in GPS navigation. Roam the unknown with Garmin. Tabora and Beyond, a hiking adventure along Idaho's highest point. Words by yours truly, Lauren Sherwood, and photos also by me, Lauren Sherwood, and probably mostly by my buddy Jeff Zausch. The summer of 2020 could have been a bust with so many things out of my control. However, I wasn't going to let that fly. I took control of what I could and hit the road to have an adventure. Prior to the summer of 2020, 15 months of my life were set aside for the preparation and planning of a two-person canoe expedition down the length of the Yukon River from the source to the Bering Sea, and it was thwarted. For my own peace of mind and well-being, I have since had to put that adventure behind me. Nevertheless, I took off for three weeks and went up to Idaho, a place I had passed through before, but itched to explore more. This particular trip started out with an epic ascent of Bora Peak. 
Perhaps the most notable feature of the mountain is called Chicken Out Ridge, a class three scramble where its climbers are faced with the decision to press forward and summit or chicken out and retreat back to their coops. The connections of everyone involved gets a little twisted, but my invite for the hike came from my Yukon expedition teammate, Karts. Karts was invited by Naked and Afraid superstar, Jeff Zausch. Karts had auditioned for Naked and Afraid and through a sequence of events connected with Jeff. Jeff held a contest on Facebook and the Idaho native would guide the winners of said contest up the mountain himself. People were also attending from Utah, Florida, and New Jersey. In years past, an attempt to hike Bora Peak to catch a lunar eclipse resulted in the climbers having to turn back just shy of the summit due to a change in weather. The night before our start, or restart for some, our eclectic crew sat around a campfire eating Jiffy Pop that I brought, envisioning our victory on top of Idaho. It was late August and the air was exceptionally smoky from a number of fires in the area. Bora Peak is located in Custer County, between the towns of Chalice and Arco. In 1932, Bora Peak was named after William E. Bora, an Idaho senator who served his constituents in the first half of the 1900s. The Lion of Idaho became an appropriate nickname for Bora, who was known for being quite outspoken on the topics of his time. While 12,662 feet may not be an impressive peak for some, the sheer elevation gain of 5,262 feet from the trailhead to the summit in about four miles is what makes this beast of an hike an undertaking, and it's one of only a handful in the country with such a gain. To ensure everyone's success, we decided to spend a night on the mountain to break up what would be, without a doubt, one heck of a day hike. Camping at the trailhead the night before allowed all of us to assemble our gear the day before and get a reasonably early start to our trek. The drive from my home in Arizona to the mountains of central Idaho took two days. Right out of the gate, I was feeling great on the hike. To my surprise, I wasn't tired, I felt strong, my head was in a good place, and I had the profound drive I knew I'd need to get myself to the top. Like most things in life, hiking is largely a mental sport. With everything in check, I started to haul myself up the side of the mountain. Though initially meandering, the trail grew steeper and the dust never let up. The seemingly vertical switchbacks eventually gave way to a plateau above the tree line. Right below this plateau, our group sought refuge for the night. The lack of flat ground to bivouac and acclimate is probably the reason most climbers attempt Bora Peak in a single day. Upon our arrival, it was evident that the real estate for sleeping was going to be a challenge to divide amongst all seven of us. As it always does, the wind picked up since we were no longer in the shelter of the trees. One of the few flat places to sleep was a shelter of sorts, built up mainly on one side with logs with a tree at the end. This shelter was sufficient for us to hang out in, but it was only big enough to comfortably sleep three. Jeff and the couple from Florida managed to string up hammocks between what few trees were available. I was quick to claim what was donned the Princess Palace, a level sleeping area below the bigger shelter that was honestly big enough for just me. Believe me, I'm no princess, but I'll never say no to a little space of my own on a mountain. Since there was ample time to kill before dinner time, I split off from the group to reinforce my sleeping area, stretch, listen to music, and take and look at pictures from the day and make my bed. Knowing there would not be a place to pitch a tent, my sleep system consisted of a tarp, sleeping pad, and quilt. Cowboy style, baby! 
Fortunately, the wind died out a bit as the blood-red sun, colored by the smoke, dipped below the false and hazy horizon. The group joined forces for supper and some obligatory jibber-jabber before calling it a night. I was about to drift off to sleep when some high alpine critters scampered across me. Eek! I counted the stars and passed out. I awoke before the sun, thinking I was about to be trampled. The shelters that kept us safe through the night were directly located right off the trail, and the stampede I was hearing was the hearty footsteps of overachieving climbers who would probably be coming down from the summit as we hit the trail. These hikers served as an early morning wake-up call, and before we knew it, we were off. Above the plateau, Chicken Out Ridge presented itself. One of my favorite scenes from the movie Home Alone is when Kevin is sitting atop the stairs. Kevin loads his BB gun, preparing for Marvin Harry, the neighborhood burglars, to invade his home. Vowing to defend his home, Kevin says. This is it. Don't get scared now. I think back to this scene often and use it to charge me up. The most daunting part of the hike for some was the most thrilling for me. Sadly, the couple from Florida did chicken out at this point, but everyone was super proud of them for conquering more landscape than they'd find in their neck of the woods. Chicken Out Ridge is the equivalent of what scrambling on a jagged knife edge would be like. There is no shortage of blocky solid holds, which is comforting for the inexperienced, but absolutely not for the faint of heart. A fear of heights would impede a climber's success here. A bad slip could potentially send a climber tumbling into the loose scree chute below, where rescue could be a challenge. The ambiance at this time was nothing short of apocalyptic, as the sun rose through the smog. The last major piece of geography to negotiate was a 20-foot drop-off before the narrowest part of the entire mountain. As of our time on the mountain, a rope was in place to guide people down. The narrow area is known as the Snow Bridge. Before August, the presence of snow could make this a precarious area where extra caution should be used. With Chicken Out Ridge behind us, the last leg of the trail was in direct sight. On our right, we found a neat glacier-like ledge that we took plenty of photos on. The view opened up, revealing more spiked peaks in the Lost River Range. During our descent at the same spot, a butterfly came out of nowhere and flew around me for a short time. Looking at photos after the fact, I kept wondering what the heck bombed the edge of my photo. It took me longer than it should have to realize that the butterfly made a cameo in my photo. A year prior, my grandma had passed away, and butterflies became a sign that she was still along for the ride with me, in some shape or form. Butterflies are a common symbol for many people and cultures, and they have a lot of significance for me too. The final slope was the most grueling part of the ascent. Loose talus and scree of various sizes made for one step forward and four steps of sliding back. The view from atop Bora Peak may not have been ideal as far as clarity and distance were concerned, but the smoke created well-defined layers of all the surrounding mountains, and on a clear day, they may not have been as pronounced. Hikes like Bora Peak make me forever grateful to have hiking poles to lighten the load on the body. I had spent a day out in the elements with the wind whipping my face, the sun beating down on me, and the altitude playing tricks in between. I take comfort knowing that what goes up must come down. To honor our High Point adventure, we feasted at one of the few restaurants in that area of rural Idaho, 
I'm pretty sure a 14-year-old served me my Coronarita. Bora Peak is a hike I reflect on often. It is a well-rounded experience with lots of variables that I look for in my definition of an epic hike. Even though the adventure that I had originally planned for the summer of 2020 didn't pan out, I'm learning to not fight a door that doesn't open for me. Some doors just aren't meant for us. Bora Peak and the butterfly were all I needed to let me know that all was well and I was exactly where I was meant to be. Here's what's coming up in issue 44 of Outdoor by 4 magazine. Caroline Van Stralen shares an adventure biking dream by her two brothers. Sean Jansen takes us on a journey along the Pacific Crest Trail. Frank Ledwell, editor-in-chief, shares his experience at the Bronco Off-Rodeo in the Texas Hill Country. And Craig Cooper discusses overlanding on a budget. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by 4 website at www.outdoorx4.com regularly for new tips, reviews, and stories, and join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by 4 magazine. You can also follow Outdoor by 4 and the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook at at OutdoorX4 and by using the hashtag OutdoorX4. Until our next issue, we wish each of you the happiest of adventures. <laughs>